A couple of months ago, my friend Meredith sent me an article from the New York Times. It was about a comedy writer named Michael Cruz Kane. He wrote a play. It's a comedy about grief and the death of his young son. In the article, Kane talks about what it feels like to give in, to focus all of your creative energy on, quote, the central fact of his own life. It made me think about how we spend so much time taking our grief, these sad facts that are core to who we are, and pushing them aside each day. We try so hard not to talk about these things. When for many of us, they are all that we want to talk about, at least for a while. I loved this passage especially, where he says, quote, I'm still at a point with it where I'm happy to be identified with the story of my son. If that means for a while or forever, I'm a grief boy, things could be worse. This subject isn't the only thing I want to contribute to the universe. But if I stopped here, I would feel like I got to say the thing I really wanted to say most of all. End quote. I'm grateful for these words. Because this is exactly how I feel here at the end of this project. Words matter so much to me. And for years and years, I tried and failed to find the right ones to describe my parents or our family, these central facts of my life. Because it's not all just about sadness, it's beauty. It's our story. This is the lens that gives so much contrast and meaning to the way that I see and move through the world. I am indelibly my parents' daughter. And finally, through this work, I feel like I got the chance to say the thing I really wanted to say, most of all. And the world feels a little bit different now as I've had some time to reflect on this journey. So that's what we'll do here in this final episode. I'm Kat O'Shaughnessy Cochran, and this is Lost and Found, my audio documentary about trying to unravel the complex relationships and heal the losses of my parents so I could find my truth and reclaim where I come from. This is Chapter 6 What's Left Behind. is it a human tendency or urge to want to share and express our experiences out loud? Like there's this creativity and expression that's related to a lot of the therapy work, but I don't know people always make the connection between the two. Do you see that? In terms of the urge to tell stories and to, sh- to share in that way, it's, I think it's just the most ancient way of connecting. And so it's, it's just in human nature and in your blood to want to share with other people and be understood and seen it's safe 
to be isolated, to be misunderstood uh, is, is unsafe as a human and as a mammal. But I think that innate desire to tell our stories is that innate desire to be seen, to be understood, and to be in community with people. And that, that is just survival at its like, most basic. This is Megan. She is the therapist who I first met the day before my mother died, April 2022. We met weekly for well over a year, and Megan guided me through this process of evolving in my grief from that initial state of shock from the loss through to this incredibly gratifying journey and creative process. Thankfully, Megan was willing to chat with me as I looked back and began to think about what it meant to put this documentary together. I truly could not have done this project without her. And some of what she had to say feels so widely relevant to people in all sorts of states of loss and grief and relationships. And I really wanted to share a few of her words of wisdom here. My name is Megan Roy. I'm a licensed clinical mental health therapist, and I consider myself a polyvagal informed therapist. Megan was the first person to begin to teach me about my nervous system, which is what polyvagal therapy is all about. She taught me about the three states of the nervous system, the ventral vagal, which is your safe social state, the sympathetic, which we think of as fight or flight, and the dorsal vagal, which is shut down. And that through therapy, we have the ability to start to recognize and understand our nervous systems and our responses and even begin to regulate them. I know it sounds like a lot of psychology here, but this is important. It gives a framework for understanding how so many of the early traumas and experiences that we have in our lives can start to shape the way that we operate and function as adults, both at home and at work. When I first came to Megan, I remember telling her that I couldn't feel anything about my mom anymore. She had just died, and I felt like the grief was out there somewhere, but it was locked away. I thought that after mom died, I'd feel this immediate release and relief. But it turned out that I had a lot more work to do, work that Megan called deep recovery work, which sounded great to me, but I realized I didn't have any clue what that meant. So what, in your words, does it mean to do deep recovery work? Well, I think for me, what I mean by deep recovery work um, is moving into, more often, moving into a state of ventral vagal regulation. Being in that regulated nervous system state is the only place that you can do deep recovery work because when you're in sympathetic fight or flight or dorsal vagal shutdown, which are the other two nervous system states, all of your resources are being used for survival. You don't actually have the capacity to access uh, any sort of like healing, restoring, 
um, self-compassion and empathy really don't exist in those two other states because you're very much in a, again, like a protected, you're not looking in so much in, in an honest or self-compassionate way. You're just in protection. So to me, deep recovery work means being able to get to know your own state of regulation and start to spend slowly more time there. And I'm curious if you think about that fight or flight, like why do you think some of us who come really far in our careers and get adrenaline out of being high achievers tend to struggle to be able to do that? If you grew up in a state of like fight or flight, if that was like your nervous system home away from home, it's not surprising that someone would pick a career that has a lot of high pressure and stress because their fight or flight feels comfortable and familiar. Um, it wouldn't be surprising that someone um, pushes themselves constantly and doesn't like to rest until they crash. That would be down into dorsal and not regulation because that was the autonomic loop of sympathetic to dorsal. So fight or flight to shut down, fight or flight to shut down that you have trained or that you have, but like your nervous system has been trained is normal. What Megan's describing here is how I spent decades, pretty much when I look back at getting myself out of the childhood environment that I grew up in, the moment I realized no one was coming to save me, applying for colleges, moving across the country, figuring out the financial aid system, all the way through the entire career that I built. If you met me in my 20s, and really most of my 30s, the only thing I wanted to talk about was my career because work was the most interesting thing that I allowed myself to really prioritize. Working with Megan helped me realize that my response to the pain and loss in the first part of my life and throughout my life as I watched my parents both die was to throw myself into the things that also felt high stakes, high pressure jobs, but that could give me something back that my relationships with my parents couldn't give to me. And it took me so long to start to unwind those patterns of behavior to be able to slow down, to feel calm and safe and connected and find the silence that I needed to do this project. What are some of the ways that exposure to chronic stress or chronic trauma can impact a person? Well, I do just want to um, make a note that I think compartmentalization is healthy um, in these types of situations, whether you're in chronic stress or chronic trauma or like a situation that you were in, because you can't heal from something you're still going through. Compartmentalization is a sign of emotional intelligence. I think people who are, who have a high EQ um, are able to compartmentalize really well. And you do that because it's a tool for you to be able to get through what you're going through to the other side, to be able to find a place of regulation to heal.
you can't heal from something you're still going through. And in some cases, we can be stuck in something for years and decades. But just because a painful experience ends also doesn't mean you're going to heal from it right away. That was the lesson I had to learn so I could get to where I am now. The very experience of creating this project itself was so revelatory for me. There were the questions, of course, that I sought to answer laid out in chapter one. And looking back, I did get all of those answers. Some of the learnings felt gigantic, earth-shifting for me. Like about how hard I had worked for so long to make excuses for my dad, which he never even asked me to do, and the way that this affected my relationship with my mother, my ability to appreciate her and see her clearly. Other answers felt more poetic in their simplicity, like learning about mom studying Shakespeare in college or that my grandfather was a pastry chef once upon a time. But what I find myself reflecting on here now, at the end of this journey, are the discoveries that I didn't set out looking for. Those are what surprised me the most. Things like the way that it felt to lose that weight I'd been carrying around for so long. When I look back, I almost imagine this visual of myself physically obliterating a gigantic rock, removing the painful object and making it dissolve. When I think of my parents now, of all those traumatic facts about my early life, I don't feel any of that anymore. It's almost as if by shifting from avoiding that pain to leaning all the way into it, embracing it, giving myself over, and treating it with focus, attention, and love, it started to change form. It's still there, but it's not so sharp any longer. It's just a part of me, and it's not a bad one. And also, the way that this process fostered so many connections, new, deeper, evolved connections with people growing up with my parents, our world felt isolating. Like everybody else was having one existence and ours was something to be ashamed of. They didn't socialize much as I was growing up and over time, they each kind of went inside of themselves. And now, as I've released these chapters of this documentary and begun to send these words out into the world, I feel a little bit like my mother in that story from chapter five, standing at the edge of the universe, arms wide open, except I'm collecting things. I'm gathering up all of the love that they left behind. And I'm bringing it back to me, to us, there's this poem called Epitaph by Merritt Malloy that captures this perfectly. My friend Sarah, the chaplain, sent it to me. It's the best way I've found to describe this feeling. 
She says, when I die, give what's left of me away to children and old men that wait to die. And if you need to cry, cry for your brother walking the street beside you. And when you need me, put your arms around anyone and give them what you need to give me. I want to leave you something, something better than words or sounds. Look for me in the people I've known or loved. And if you cannot give me away, at least let me live in your eyes and not your mind. You can love me most by letting hands touch hands, by letting bodies touch bodies, and by letting go of children that need to be free. Love doesn't die. People do. So when all that's left of me is love, give me away. I believe now. Grief is meant to be a conversation. It's a dialogue, not a monologue. It's so fundamental to the human existence that it's unnatural to shut it away, to deny it, and deprive it of air. We are meant to connect through our grief the same way we do when a new life comes into this world. And after internalizing loss and pain for so long now, I'm learning to suffer out loud. I'm not even sure how else to do it. People have responded. I'm now in regular communication with all of the people that I interviewed in this project, some of whom I hadn't spoken to in years or almost ever. I have a new relationship with my cousin Shelby, Julia's daughter, and we've been able to compare notes and make up for last time. She even sent me my grandmother Mike's chocolate chip cookie recipe, which I do plan to try and will probably mess up. Shelby assures me I won't. But also, my mother came back to me. After years of struggling to remember her voice, or what it felt like to get a phone call from her, to have a conversation and know what it's like to seek wisdom or comfort in your mother's words, Mom has begun to appear in my dreams. I was startled the first time it happened, but quickly grateful. The words she wrote in all of her memoirs and journals take on new meaning for me now, now that the fog of anger and resentment and the pain has cleared. I've heard from very old friends of mine who didn't realize quite what I was going through all of those years ago or some who felt and understood something new in hearing my journey. I've connected with strangers who needed to hear something in what I had to say and who gave back to me by sharing their own thoughts or words or experiences. What's left behind is also this, my mom's school. It's called Eastside Academic School and it's now almost 45 years old. In 2010, my sister started to work alongside my mother, unwittingly, in what turned out to be the same year that we learned about mom's MS, and started to see her mind really begin to go. Over time, Jen took it over completely. She gave it new life. She broke it wide open. It's like she took our mom's original dream, and she grew it into something even more 
amazing. The other day she called me and said that a new family came by with their kid, not satisfied with the schools that they had had access to and really desperately hoping for a place their child could be seen, supported, a place they could thrive. And as they spoke, they discovered that the father had actually gone to the school himself. They're the first multi-generational family to attend the school that our mother started. He said she changed his life. She was the first person to tell him about a little school in Idaho that was a perfect place for him, where he met his wife. And then there's Jen, my big sister, my family, the single person in the world who understands the way deep love, pain, and hurt can live together the way that it does when it comes to our parents. We still exist. We carry forward what's left of that family. I'd like to think the good stuff that got lost in all of the pain and tragedy. Mom always said that we were her proudest legacy, and I'd like to think we've done that justice. We're best friends. And ultimately, what I found in all of this was her, us, my mom, and me. I realize that while I do wish I'd had more of her, I am so grateful for the parts of her that I did get to have, that I get to carry around like a stone in my pocket and pass along to others in my life and to her four grandchildren because they are really the ones she leaves behind. I so wish she could have known them. All right. Can you guys tell me what you do remember about my mom? If anything, it's okay if you don't remember much. She loves flowers and she loves she loves dahlias and um she she always like she was very kind and and she always had a laugh. What do you think about the fact that I've spent nine months working on this project, spending time learning about my parents, talking to people? What does that make you feel? Like this is something really, really important to you. Something that make, could make a huge impact on our family. How does it make you to feel to know that there's this whole documentary with all this information about where you come from, and where I come from, and where my parents come from that you can listen to one day? It makes me feel amazing that we're sharing our culture and our family. It makes me feel like not just us will know about all this important stuff. And what do you hope you might learn from it? I hope that'll about what it's like to be them. Now your middle name is O'Shaughnessy. What does it mean to you to be on O'Shaughnessy? 
It makes me feel really connected to my family. It makes me feel like I belong somewhere. Silvery sky When I arrive You blush Golden Yellow Shower the trees Hiding beneath I So that's it. Thank you so much for taking some time to listen, to connect, and to share in some small piece of my parents and all that they left behind. I want to say thanks to the many people who helped me make this crazy idea into a reality. Not least of which is my husband, Nick Coffrin, my kids, Amelia and Dylan and every single family member and friend who agreed to be interviewed to let me use their voices and their words. And of course, to my incredible therapist, Megan Roy. Thanks also to Scott Esmond for teaching me how to use audio editing software and lending his moral support and expertise along the way. Thanks to Cassie Gillespie for teaching me how to navigate podcast land and to the countless friends who listened and gave feedback all along the way. I sourced all of the music from Soundstripe, and all of the artists are listed in the show notes on my website, lostandfoundaudiodoc.com. Thanks especially to Timber Choir for the incredible music that they make that lent some of the most impactful sounds and lyrics that you heard throughout the show. And most of all, thanks to you for listening. It's so important to me to share this whole experience with as many people as possible with the hopes that no one will have to feel alone and isolated like they are in a monologue with their grief because it should be a conversation. So thanks for joining me with mine. And that is a wrap.